This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, which glasses look better on me? Oh, what's this? Zenny's 3D virtual try-on. Pretty cool, right? Hmm. Uh, I don't know about the purple cat eyes. I think they're fun. What about these tortoiseshell glasses? Or these rimless sunglasses? Oh, what about these clear frames? Wait, are those prices real? Do they have glasses for men? Yep. They also have affordable blue light glasses. Seriously? At those prices? Get them all. I like where this is going. Zenni.com. Quality prescription glasses starting at $6.95. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to you. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Rose Sampson Folk, and today a special guest, Yasmin from the Dishes and Dimes Podcast, one of the most popular sports podcasts in Canada as of right now. It might have hit the top 100, I believe, on iTunes. I'm not sure as of right now, but Yasmin, how are you doing? How's the podcast been? And just how's life? Life is good. Um, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, and yeah, the, the podcast is going great. It's Kind of overwhelming because we did drop it just a couple weeks ago, um, but the response has been amazing. Um, uh, it is really fun just to talk to like-minded individuals for hours on end. Yeah, it's interesting. The nine co-hosts is that's a lot of co-hosts. I believe it's nine. And was the initial idea to have such a high number of hosts meant to enhance how the podcast performed, or was it difficult to imagine denying a spot to any of the talented women? who represent the podcast now, did it just end up that you guys saw opportunities to bring on more women and you're just like, okay, let's bring on another one and let's just have this whole team of, of women who can who can talk shop about basketball? Um, literally all of the above. <laughs> um, so like Sandy, she's the one who gathered us all together. I did the Kobe Bryant uh, podcast with her um, a couple weeks ago. Um, and she basically just skimmed through her timeline and gathered her favorite Raptors Twitter female personalities. Um, there's just a plethora of girls online uh, who are interested in the same things. And it was very, very organic. Um, and the high amount of hosts just kind of allows us to always have content coming out. Um, all, all of the women involved are working or in school. So um, whenever anyone is available, they just hop on, give her two cents. Um, and it's been working out great thus far. Yeah, it's definitely, it's had a great response online. I hope your guys' listens are going well. Well, obviously, if it's doing well on iTunes to the point that it is. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that seems like a a great indication of not only falling into a great marketing thing, seeing as you're combining all of your collective, I guess, maybe not brand, but your platforms. And with quite a few of the women, yourself included, the, a pretty decent Twitter following as well. But also that, like you were saying, it is by committee. So you guys are always ready to pump out the content. And to bring that back is you had that emergency, well, watch a Jace pod with Katie Heindel. And you guys were talking about the, the Masai Ujiri version of it all. And if you could give me the cliff notes of what you think of the whole Masai Ujiri situation, I would just love to hear that. Uh, that was a very fun episode to record. It actually went longer than expected because, um, you know, it was just a day before the trade deadline. So me and Katie had so much to discuss. Um, but yeah, so the topic uh, of Masai Ujiri and the New York Knicks um, happened to be very popular on the timeline at the moment um, and at the time that we recorded it. So we discussed it. Uh, and it's just, it's very interesting. It seems that whenever things are going well for the Raptors, um, <laughs> Masai Ujiri related uh, news of him leaving um, to usually a very uh, poorly run franchise just emerges and um, it, it, we just found some humor in that. Um, and it, it's interesting because um, immediately after, it seemed that the rumors were shot down because now he's in Africa with um, Justin Trudeau. Um, and global media 
and Canadian reporters are asking him questions about the New York Knicks while he's there doing politics. So it's just very interesting. Well, I have a question. Is Justin Trudeau, the facial hair, is it good or is it bad? What do you think? I, I'm Honestly, I'm going to say it's good. He kind of looks like, um, uh, you know those commercials for like men's hair dye? Just for like, men? Like yeah, one of just those? for men. Okay. Yeah, so his hair is like a very deep brown and then he has the very intensely gray beard. It's just, it's very interesting. <laughs> it's the duality of man. Yeah, I love the clash of um, generations on the head right there <laughs> exactly he's a man of the people he's appealing to a wide a wide base of of people what i want to yeah, talk about and like the youth <laughs> yeah exactly it's interesting the in culture there's this idea of a home wrecker that i don't think has ever been really honest because from what i know it's almost always the man's fault and the home wrecker thing always seemed like displaced anger however comma I actually think that the New York Knicks and James Dolan would actually fit that archetype for what's happening between the Raptors, Masai Ujiri, and the New York Knicks, wouldn't you say? Now, now that's, that's a very um, interesting uh, analogy right there. I like that. Uh, whenever things are going well, they want the attention immediately on them. <laughs> Yeah, they, they, they come to steal the attention. It, it would almost be like if there was any good... Like well, I guess it happens with the New York Knicks. Anytime there's anything good, not just with the Raptors, but anywhere else that the they'll try and make it about them. But I guess more specifically, it was it was a worse thing this time around because there were allegedly rumors well the rumors were alleging that Adam Silver was trying to I guess coerce Masai yeah. <laughs> Jiri into going <laughs> and saving the New York Knicks. What does that do to this whole situation? How did that make you feel about it? Um, I, I'm not sure if it's even true, but uh, it's just given um, the social media aspect, like just so much more um, humor <laughs> and memes, because now uh, it seems as though NBA media is just saturated rap with Raptors content right now, because I keep seeing uh, NBA Twitter tweets and like ESPN, um, all of the global NBA accounts tweeting Raptors clips, and everyone. OG Ananobi <laughs> has had a, a good defensive fourteen games. Did you know like, he's I've been pretty seen, good? I've never seen a clip of OG go viral, so <laughs> I was very confused. People are like saying Adam Silver needs to chill out now. Yeah, it's been a very, I guess, media saturated week for the Raptors. What with the what about the scarves? The I don't do fashion, I do art. It's that very obviously. Odd. <laughs> It is, but it's also great. And talking about the duality of man, it was one is very good and wholesome with the scarves thing with OG and Serge, and then one is this underhanded, sneaky Messiah is trying to work his way out of there. Adam Silver is working with him, and the Raptors are sitting in potential fallout, wondering what the hell is going on here. And everybody on Twitter is wondering an even larger degree. But to talk about basketball, I'd like to a thought exercise here. Let's pretend I know very little about basketball. As if I were a man who, let's say, thought Zach Levine should be an all-star over Kyle Lowry. If I asked you to convince me why Terrence Davis were a rising star without disparaging any other players, <laughs> how would you do it? I love how this has become like a, like such a personal shot now. Everyone's angry on behalf of Terrence. <laughs> yeah, he's... Uh... He's he's such a sweetheart that you kind of have to do yeah, it. Yeah, very protective, yeah. It's kind of like that the Raptors fan base is collectively the girlfriend who's correcting the boyfriend's screwed up food order, if that's the <laughs> analogy we want to work with. It's very like um, angry parent at like a t in teacher's interview or something, that kind of energy. Um, but yeah, Ter the thing with Terrence is that he's like such a stark contrast to your classic like um, lottery pick player who's usually dropped into a terrible system. They're given all of the minutes and all of the touches. And then you have Terrence Davis, who's like this undrafted player in a winning system, in a post-championship team, and who has to basically claw for his minutes, plays great basketball when he does get his touches. Um, his numbers are amazing. His efficiency is amazing. He's not a shot chucker. He only shoots when he, he knows he has it going. Um, and when he does, like, if you can, like, just look at his percentages, he's shooting above 40% from three. He's almost like a 50-40-90 rookie, which is insane. 
Um, and he does this in like such limited minutes. And we always argue about or get mad at Nick Nurse really um, about the short leash that he has on Terrence. And um, yeah, just the the contrast to um, players who are you know more privileged in the sense that they might have um, they might be under twenty two years old or um, chosen as like a top fourteen pick um, and. Terrence, it would have been nice to have Terrence as just a representative of the non-lottery players. Um, and then, you know, players like Matisse Thibel also. You can honestly apply what I said about um, Terrence to a player like that, too, except he was a first-round pick. So, um, yeah, that's that's my argument on behalf of Terrence Davis. Do you think this is a repercussion of the international versus USA framework that the, the game works out of? Yeah, so there's limited roster spots. You would only have, what, 15 places for U.S. players? Um, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know. What's the easy fix? He become Canadian between now and then? <laughs> that, oh my God. Could you imagine? <laughs> the people, the parade would be bigger than it was for the championship. If <laughs> Terrence Davis, the fever pitch of the fandom and hysteria about him right now, if he said, I'm going to become a Canadian... Oh my sweet lord! The it would be crazy. All he has to do, all he has to do, is renounce his American citizenship and then like apply for asylum in Canada. Very exactly. easy. Well, he can, and his cancer, he's going to lead the way, I think, post retirement in trying to set up an organization that registers players as Canadian. He's got a and his oh cancer God, yeah. loves Canada. That's, that um, Celtic fans always um, joke about that. How? Before, uh, before was it Christmas? Was his first game in Canada in years or something? Yeah, and he had that tweet where he's like, "Oh my God, I, I'm about to be in the motherland, Canada." <laughs> uh, and, and basically, um, as soon as he was ba- like granted access into Canada, Celtic fans were saying, "Oh well, congratulations on the wins, guys." Yeah, so he's. Well, I guess Ennis Cantor. Uh, let's talk about that for a second. How do just I'm interested in him and I, I'm interested to get your take. How does he fit in the league to you? Because however many years ago, he would have been an absolute stud. He was a stud when he was first drafted third overall. Obviously, they saw high potential in him. How does he fit in the league? Because there is some utility in having a guy like that. But at other times, he's just getting crushed in the pick and roll. Is is he going to be a detriment to the Celtics in the playoffs? Or is he going to be one of those players who everyone says they're not going to be good in the playoffs, but he's going to eat for two or three games in the first round and maybe save a lot of possessions for them? Yeah, I, I think uh, Celtic fans kind of know what they're getting with Ennis Cantor. Before, there was just a lot of anger and jokes in the beginning of the season, but they seem pretty content with what he can do. Um, but the thing with um, Ennis Cantor is that his, his game hasn't really aged well, um, but he found a role or a skill set that at least makes him useful for minutes in the league with his offensive rebounding and putbacks. So, um, you know, that's, I, guess, I guess that's how you find uh, a place in the NBA when, you're, when your game doesn't really age too well. You just have to kind of perfect a skill that at least makes you useful as a, a very limited role player in a system. Yeah, and the Raptors, that's one of their deficiencies, is rebounding. And philosophically in basketball, I think that the Raptors, they view rebounding as something that, maybe to use a French word, uh, their players can ameliorate to, that they can get to a place where they can all band together and rebound better as a team, but they don't view rebounding as one of those prime skills. Like the, the Celtics obviously wanted a guy who could come in and eat glass like Ennis Cantor, but the Raptors choosing to fill their roster out with guards usually or wing players, Chris Boucher aside, the Raptors, they don't really prioritize rebounding. Do you think that will come back to bite them in the butt in the playoffs, or do you think that OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, Gasol, Ibaka, Kyle Lowry, one of the best rebounding guards for his size ever, by committee will be able to shore up that weakness? Um, yeah, it doesn't seem to be something that the team prioritizes. I think that they just prioritize um, transition defense more so than crashing the glass and getting rebounds. But um, last year, it was the same case. They weren't a great rebounding team. Um, Kawhi, he knew when to turn it on. And I feel like um, the team collectively, um, when they do put the effort towards it, I think we saw it towards the last um, several games of the uh, Philly series, 
um, when the team really concentrates to attack the glass, they can do it. Um, I've seen it even this season in fourth quarters when they have like just a collective tendency to um, turn up the intensity on defense. Um, but yeah, I just this team, the way they play, the way they play defense, the way they use defense to transition um, into offense and get easy looks, um, they just seem to want to play a high-speed form of basketball and get as many possessions as possible. So giving up a rebound, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to um, change the outcome of the game. There are very few instances this season where I feel like they've lost a game due to rebounding. Um, I think that one of the first few games of the season versus the Celtics, um, they were just out-rebounded horribly, like, I think the Celtics had something like 20 more possessions than the Raptors that game. And I, I can't think of another instance where it was that much of an issue. I have a, a funny backstory regarding that game. That was in the first black box report that Lewis Zatzman and I ever did. I watched every single offensive rebound that the Raptors had given up to that point in the season. And I was rating whose fault it was. And then somebody in the comments said that I had lied. And it, it made me so upset. And it was regarding one of the rebounds in that game. Because what had happened was Kyle Lowry had left, I believe it was, Kemba Walker alone in the corner and had drifted over to Robert Williams, who was Marcus Gasol's guy. And then, I guess, Kemba Walker got the rebound. So I was like, okay, that's, that's Kyle Lowry's fault. He drifted over when he shouldn't have. He missed his, his check. But the person was like, clearly, this is Marcus Gasol's fault. So Sam... How are we supposed to trust every other rebound that he rated? And I was like, what? Just because Kyle Lowry comes over and puts his butt on Robert Williams, that doesn't mean that suddenly that's <laughs> his guy now. They can double up. That's fine. But regardless, yes, the, that game against the Boston Celtics was something else. And another thing that happened in that game was Grant Williams became Marcus All's father for like yeah. 15 <laughs> minutes on the court. That was such a weird thing. Yeah, He's so a- strong. He's he's really strong, and what is he like six six? Six six or six seven? Yeah, yeah big he's, dude. He's great. Yeah, and uh, that that game is just interesting because I feel like the first few games of the season, um, even versus um, the Bucks, I think that was a couple of days later or before. I don't really remember, but it was around the same time. Um, they just seemed to not really they they didn't seem used to the um, type of defense that they were playing. Like I just found that. Um, there are a lot of losing guys on backdoor cuts, which is, it happens to the best of them, but um, the Raptors in particular, they just kind of seem to be ball watching and kind of confused with rotations where um, now they just seem to be on a string. So um, I don't know, maybe there was an adjustment period with this new roster kind of um, construction. Yeah, it's it's tough to say because the Raptors, they, they were such an interesting team coming into the year and Definitely, they've they've pieced together this defense with lots of ups and downs, seemingly, but never hitting that low of a low. And the Raptors, just like you said, having the rotations on a string means that w- what we've seen in a lot of games is that when that string breaks, they are playing a very aggressive brand. And when that string breaks, it can get kind of crazy right away, yeah. like when they were playing the Bulls, the Pacers, and who else did they play before that? I can't remember. Well, Minnesota, maybe. No, sorry. Uh, Bulls and the Pacers were hitting double-digit three-pointers in the first half. Both teams yeah. that don't hit a ton of three-pointers. There was that game. Well, pretty much any game, the Raptors is a case study in how offenses will morph to beat the Raptors because the Raptors throw what's probably the most unique defense in the league at teams. It's just It forces Jarrett Culver to hit four three-pointers in the first quarter. And the Raptors kind of have to adjust after that. But usually yeah. in the second half, it gets better. Yeah, it's not like it's happened quite a few times this season where they kind of get burned by um, regression or progression. Uh, I think it was versus the Rockets where Ben McLemore just launched something like 23s that Hell, game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, and it, it's it's it sucks because it w- if they actually won that game, it would have just been an, a, like a great go to example of a Nick Nurse defense um, just working wonders. <laughs> What, let's let's talk Rockets for a moment because I think that they're one of the most interesting teams in the league. Robert Covington is as good as prime Kevin Garnett. We're all aware of this. How did the Rockets feel about adding a player of that quality? He was so good. I, I watched that Lakers game. He was game. fantastic. He was just everywhere. And um, 
the Rockets, like, they have a tendency to, um, when when one person doesn't try on defense, they just all stop trying collectively, especially if the other team is scoring very well. Um, so that game, just to see him maintain a standard of effort, uh, I think will be really good for that team. Like, you already know that P.J. Tucker's going to bring it. And, you know, contrary to popular belief, like, James Harden's not a terrible defender. Uh, it tends to be, like, an effort thing. I think he exerts himself a lot on offense. So... Um, just seeing him running around and blocking blocking um, jumpers and just using his IQ to get to the right guy at the right time on rotations, which is very good to see. Yeah, and what about the, I guess it's the chubby-faced assassin, Eric Gordon. How nice is it to see that he's <laughs> playing well again? Yeah, he was like genuinely maybe the worst player in the NBA for like much of the season. So to see him become a useful player and randomly drop, what, 50 versus the Jazz is good to see. It's good to see for them. I'm, I'm very interested to see how this um, five-out, no-center thing works out for them. Eric Gordon has always been a boss in the playoffs. He is so damn good as a tertiary option because he's so much more athletic than people think. He's like this oh, yeah. six-four guy. He looks like he runs a donut shop, like kind of on his days off. He's just hanging out, but then it's boom, that first step. And he gets into yeah. the lane, you're like, okay, here comes the floater. I've seen this from Darius Garland before. Certainly, Eric Gordon will do something similar. Wham! And he'll dunk on a guy. And everyone will be like, where the hell did this come from? <laughs> but he was going to be in the dunk contest, I guess. What was it, like seven years ago before he got injured? But Or did he lose to DeMar DeRozan in the dunk-off? Do you what remember that? that? What year was that? 2012, maybe. 20, 2012 or 2011. It, it might have been an L to DeMar then. That sounds like, yeah. Well, I think who's Brandon Jennings, Eric Gordon, and Demar were the ones who were involved in it, and one of them got injured, and it wasn't Demar. Oh, does that jog your memory at all? No, I do not remember at all. Yeah. Now I want to search that. <laughs> yeah, pointless, pointless NBA historia. But I guess I'll swing us into the the next thing I want to talk about, which is the playoff rotation. And the Raptors have had a lot of moving parts this year. As far as a nine-man rotation goes or 10-man rotation goes, we've seen starring roles from Chris Boucher in quite a few games, Ronda Hollis-Jefferson, especially at the start of the year. And as late as last night, Matt Thomas with a sustained excellence in the game where the Raptors built how to beat the zone off of his gravity and relocation. Great stuff, but it's rare for teams to maintain a 10-man rotation, sans the Milwaukee Bucks, of course, into the playoffs. Whose minutes are going to get chopped in the postseason, do you think? Um, I'm going to say, we're, well, you have the starting five. And then off the bench, you would have Serge, Norm. Um, and I'm going to say you're going to see minutes split between uh, Terrence Davis and McCaw. And I feel like Rondé is going to be used in small doses. Is just because we've seen the good with Rondé, but we've also seen the floor with him as well, um, and how his specific skill set works only with certain lineups where everyone is on the court is a shooter or everyone on the court is an offensive threat. Um, so yeah, that's that's who I see getting um, their minutes more limited. Um, I feel like Terrence Davis's energy is going to be used to spark a lot of. Um, offensive lulls that we come sometimes uh, see versus good defenses in the playoffs. Uh, I could just see him having like a lot of signature moments. Like whenever he has a good game, that's what I tweet. Um, uh, it's kind of reminiscent of um, like rookie early Norman Powell or Norman Powell versus the Bucks or something. But um, I feel like the starters are just going to be playing a ton of minutes. Um, we're going to probably see their minutes come. Um, to more manageable levels towards the end of the season. So um, that's how I think it's going to pan out. Uh, the OG Ananobi of it all, we've seen he hasn't always been closing games recently. Do you mm -hmm. expect that to change going into the playoffs? Do you think that, because Norman Powell, if he, if he does return to form, could definitely put his name in the hat to be a closer for the Raptors, Serge Ibaka next to Marcus All, depending on the matchup. Do we expect OG Ananobi to be a closer by that time to get everything rounded into form offensively? Obviously, his defense is there already, but do we think that's something that'll happen for him this year? Um, I, I think that with OG Ananobi, um, 
if it seems as though every starter is a sure thing except for him. And I say that not because he's um, the weakest starter or anything, but because the need of the team um, can sometimes make him just sort of disposable for the uh, closing minutes of a game, um, especially if they're down. I find uh, if Norman Powell has a hot hand, Nick Nurse is more willing to play him instead of OG. But honestly, um, OG's been so good this year, except for the um, recent little slump that he was in that he kind of broke out of versus Indiana um, the second time. But um, he's starting to find that, you know, when as a, as a kind of fifth option role player, you have to look for your offenses, your, your offensive touches in... Um, kind of the cracks of the team so coming in for cuts and being a spot-up shooter that can relocate I find that when OG doesn't um, force himself or kind of look for his opportunities and kind of hangs out on the perimeter that's when we see him attempting maybe one shot a game but I think towards the end of the season and with all the games left he's going to start finding his rhythm and finding his opportunities to make himself useful when it counts because his um, defense is just so useful and necessary, and he's getting better and better as a team defender. That was always kind of his weakness. He kind of um, would lose attention on the um, the team defensive mechanism, but I'm finding that he's just so aware, and he's keeping his eye on absolutely everybody on the court and recovering for a lot of mistakes that other players are doing. So if he can continue to... Um, find his looks. I think that he would just become indispensable. Yeah, it's interesting. But he was he was bad enough for us to consider it a slump, but good enough yeah, exactly. for the NBA. I think it's UK account to to make a, a <laughs> supercut of all of his best plays in the past fourteen games. But it That's is interesting. Or oh, sorry, his go ahead. Are, yeah, his his highs like are just like they kind of leave you in awe. When OG looks good, he looks really really good. Um, and when he looks bad, like his floor isn't even that low because you know you're at least getting great defense with him. You might be giving up some sort of offensive gravity or if he's not making shots in a game, it's very, you know, you might not see him make one for the entire game. So um, to, his highs are just like, I, I see why Raptors fans like will always have faith in him. <laughs> yeah, it's when he's rumbling to the rim, depending on the, the line he takes, he can be completely unstoppable. And especially if he gets to a two-foot stop, that's a really great thing for him. He has a lot of, like, there's just a lot of kinetic power in how he's able to work off of a two-foot mm-hmm. stop and a two-foot jump. Yeah. yeah. And it's, the biggest difference, I think, is how he shapes up off of drives. You, Kyle Lowry is one of the best players in the league at doing that. Fred Van Vliet, pretty good as well. Obviously, Matt Thomas, a prolific shooter really great. We've seen guys like Doug McDermott who are really good at that in recent games from opponents, but OG in a game where he's successful, I think you see more of him shaping up off of a drive from Kyle Lowry, whether that's finding you know a lane behind the help side defense mm-hmm. or just following that drive and maintaining the passing lane for a shorter guard like Kyle Lowry. That's so many players take that for granted that they think, okay, I'm going to find the soft spot in the floor and I'm going to wait here. But depending on how the defense is reacting, that might have to be a law pass. And as we know, OG Ananobi likes to be a bit more open than he would yeah. be after a closeout after a law pass. When he shapes up and they're allowed to throw the line drive pass, whether it's whether it's Fred on a bounce pass or Kyle just spraying out to the corner, that's when OG is at his best, I think, is when he's diligent working off of those drives, when he really embodies, okay, I'm assisting them here by helping shape the defense not only for myself to attack it, but in how Kyle Lowry's attacking as well. And just being heavy motion off the ball when players are attacking is how you keep it from having digs in on a player like Serge Ibaka when he's driving to the rim from like the high post or off the roll. Just being able to space out and being diligent in that way. I really like to see that from OG and that comes and goes. I don't know if you see that too. Yeah, I find with um, OG, it just requires a lot of mental engagement, what he does on um, offense, because you know you're getting that with his defense. He's paying attention to the rotations. He's paying attention to other people's um, offensive assignments. So just to see him find that balance while also remaining engaged in the offensive end is just, it's really important. Plus also, 
they need more from him because, you know, last season you already had Kawhi Leonard taking that offensive load. Everyone has had to step up just a little bit. So he's doing better than his rookie season, but I guess people want to see that leap. They're seeing Kyle Lowry take on a bigger offensive burden. They're seeing Pascal take on a huger um, offensive burden. You can say it for literally every player on, on the roster. So uh, I, I guess people want to see OG do the same, but it's important to remember how young he is. He's still one of the youngest players on the roster, um, but I already see improvement improvements in his plays. Yeah, there's there's small improvements that he's making all the time. Mm-hmm. It's if you look at a drive from last year, especially not one that comes off the catch, but one off the dribble, he there's market improvements there, especially in how he's he used to his shoulder used to be at the defender's knees when he was driving like dribbling the ball. He would be yeah. way off kilter. And now he's a lot more straight up, but he can still engage into that slithery kind of mode before going up strong for a finish. His lines a lot stronger. Seems like he uses his strength a lot better. He's and he's his just, footwork, yeah, his footwork much much under better. The, like right under the basket is really really good. Yeah, and that was I think it was last year I wrote at the start of the year that he dunked the same percentage of his shots around the rim as Giannis. That's not as high this year, but that is another thing. When he gets around there, after watching Rondé Hollis Jefferson go three for seven, even though every <laughs> shot he takes is a layup, you're like, man, this guy cannot get anything to go around the rim. It is really nice to watch OGN and Obi take it on the catch, take his two steps, and dunk on the opposite side of the rim with so much ease. There yeah. is there is a, a, a nice feeling to watching him because when he's around the rim and he's going up instead of for a layup, you're like, oh, he's going to dunk on somebody or it's just a dunk. There's There's no way he's ever missing that. There's an assurance to that. Yeah, and it's a, it's always a different direction. He, you never know if he's going to um, go with the reverse or anything. So um, shot blockers around the area don't really know how to react. Yeah, that's that's an important step for him, too, is just his footwork, not only to stay on balance, but to start using it to keep defenders off balance. Like yeah. Kyle Lowry, obviously, is the golden... He's the golden boy for all things footwork. You watch him rumble into the lane, hold his pivot foot, and find a streaking Siakam or Serge Ibaka or Kawhi Leonard for a dunk however many times over the past year and a half. Or he'll just bowling ball his way in there, stop on a dime, pump fake the defender, bump him, and shoot it after jumping like two inches off the ground. No other player really does that except for Kyle Lowry. But before we get to the ad break, is there anything Raptors that you want to touch on? Something that you think we've missed? Um, no, I think that's no, I think that's everything. It's just this win streak um, that they're on right now. Seeing the offensive production just from everyone on the roster has been really cool. Um, you would think like, oh, if they're on a fourteen-game win streak, it probably means that their all stars are just on fire. But that hasn't been the case. It's just seeing the um, production from everybody has been really cool. That was I wrote a, a piece about Damian Lillard, I think it was three years ago, that during because he had had so many win streaks in his career of over five games, quite a few of them in his career, but his statistics never changed. And the more <laughs> I went into it, it was just like, oh, Damian Lillard is so great all the time. It's just when the Portland Trailblazers decide to pick it up at all, that's when they start going on win streaks. You would see that during a win streak, his numbers sometimes would even get a little bit worse. But he was so even keeled for so long that it was just like when everybody else on the team finally picks it up, we're going to bust off a win streak. But Dame, even in a loss, he just kept it moving. It was it was definitely one of the weirder things I looked into because I expected it to, like you said, okay, the All-Stars are taking it home. But yeah, maybe the Raptors. Yeah, well, totally you would because... We, we've seen it from so many players before, mm-hmm. and there is kind of this ethos of the NBA that's like the the star puts the team on his back. And the Raptors, they kind of they laugh in the face of that ethos, and they, they make it about the team, and maybe to a degree that we haven't really seen before, embodied by this 14-game win streak, embodied by Pascal missing more than 10 games, Gasol more than 10 games, Lowry near 10 games, Ibaka near 10 games, so many missed games, and the Raptors just winning over and over and over. It doesn't matter if it's Chris Boucher, Malcolm Miller, O'Shea Brissett, 
there is a level of organizational competence that I don't know if I've ever seen before. No, yeah, it's been pretty amazing to witness. Um, it, it's kind of when you have, a, I feel like, a very reliable system that everyone has bought into, um, getting what is needed to kind of just fulfill the goal of winning um, is just, there's just, just, even yesterday with the close game, there's just this um, feeling that they're going to pull it off. Every time I'm watching them, I feel like they're just going to figure it out and pull it off, which is just kind of a, just a very foreign uh, sensation watching a Raptors game. You could go give that speech at a marketing firm and get paid, I think. <laughs> when everybody buys into the goal, fulfilling the win, it's easier than you think. We just have to buy in, okay? You're not making money. It's fine. You're based off of commission. It's okay. You got to buy in, all right? I have to buy a new car. I'm at the top. You're at the bottom. <laughs> Keep it moving, guys. But are you uh, are you ready to get into the, the ad break? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Listener, thank you very much for tuning in to this point. You're going to hear an advertisement roll. And after that, Yasmin and I will be answering your Twitter questions. Here's the scenario. Your insurance company is denying your long-term disability claim despite the fact that you've paid premiums for years and your own doctor insists that you're not well enough to work. If this sounds familiar, call Goldfinger Personal Injury Law. You'll speak with me, Brian Goldfinger, a licensed and experienced lawyer who practices exclusively on behalf of accident victims, disability claimants, and their families. Visit goldfingerlaw.com and get us working for you. And welcome back. Still Samson Folk hosting, still joined by Yasmin of the Dishes and Times podcast and ready to answer your Twitter questions that you posed. And I'm going to swing the first one to you, Yasmin, from Terrence Davis to fan account. Says, what has been your fave moment or player development of the season so far? What do you want to see either from the team or a specific player in the second half of the season? Um, I'm going to say uh, the rookie, Terrence Davis. That has been the fa- my favorite um, developmental story arc during the season. Um, just, I don't know, just seeing the upside that he presents. Um, and in being a rookie, it's very exciting. It's very hard not to get high on rookies. So <laughs> I, I try to like kind of taper my expectations with him, but he just keeps exceeding them. Yeah, he's been he's been so fantastic. And like you were talking about earlier in the podcast, for a rookie to come in and get close to 50-40-90, I know Myers Leonard had his 50-40-90 season, but I'm not even sure, even though he played more minutes, if it was on as high a volume as Terrence Davis is currently doing. His hey, ability... He's a guard, yeah. Terrence yeah, is a guard. Is, his ability to hunt three-point shots is... Mm-hmm. It's certainly not Ray Allen... But why not say that it's Ray Allen-esque? It's very aggressive, and it adds... The same way that Chris Boucher, when he comes in as a dive man, it adds a different element to the Raptors' offense. Terrence Davis, being that aggressive off the catch, really does change how defenses work, and it changes how defenses defend the Raptors as a whole. It's a really great wrinkle to have, being able to... How many buyout seasons have the Raptors been clamoring for a Wesley Matthews or a Wayne Ellington and seemingly have that in-house now? Because Wayne Ellington, I remember that great year with the Heat where he was so aggressive off of pin downs, whether he was running like a wheel route coming back up around elevator plays, really, really aggressive off the catch. And watching that happen as a Raptors fan, you're like, wow, I wish we had a guy who would gun like that. Terrence Davis has been that guy. Yeah, and he's... He's already tall enough, like he's six four, I think. Uh, but he gets such lift on his shot, and he doesn't really need too much space. He's just—he's always willing. He always has enough space, and it—it it goes in at a high rate. So just seeing it, I think it's going to translate well in his career. Because sometimes you might feel like it's a one-off season, but I see a very unique shot um, that seems to rely mostly on kind of just a hand-eye coordination thing, which is. I feel like a mark of a really good shooter. Yeah, he's a really high release, really high arc, and he like he mixes up the alignment of his body. When you look at a guy like Clay Thompson or Steph Curry, it's that from shoulder to knee, everything sits on one side. But uh, another great shooter like Kyle Lowry, there's a lot. You see the elbow dip in. You see the push. There's some 
some strength coming from the left side of the body. And Terrence Davis is the same way. He dips, that elbow dips towards his left side, and he kind of lifts up in front of his face. It's a bit awkward, but he shoots yeah, the ball I, really well. And it's not the ideal jump shot, but, I mean, mm-hmm. it goes in. Yeah, and I, I can see him in the future just coming off of screens at weird angles and still being able to get off his shot, which is, like, a really good skill for him to develop in the coming years. Yeah, I think it'll it'll be interesting just because of the way he well, he's aligned when he shoots. If he's as potent going to his right as he is going to his left, mm-hmm. because going to his left definitely favors that style of jump shot. But it's important to shoot the jumper that works for you. I was super high on Malcolm Miller going into this year because I saw that he shortened up his jumper. I know, obviously, Clay Thompson, very famous for having a very high pickup point, a very fast jumper. Malcolm mm-hmm. Miller, he changed his pickup point this last year, but he hasn't shot the ball well. He has a really great fundamental textbook jumper, but he hasn't shot the ball well. Terrence Davis, not fundamental, not textbook, but shooting the lights out. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's important to do what works for you, and that's been... Also, he helps out on the glass. He is a super underrated rebounder. Sometimes he's a little bit gung-ho defensively. Every once in a while, he'll have a, a bit of a, I guess, a laissez-faire turnover. But overall, he's been he's been terrific. It has definitely been one of the best moments or player development, I guess, adjacent things to watch this season so far. Is there is there anything else you've really liked from the Raptors this year, as far as that goes? Um, I like how if they've noticed OG hasn't been getting touches, they make an effort in the coming games to make sure to get him going, which is just really cool. I think one of the underrated traits of a point guard like Kyle Lowry is that he's just so aware of what's going on mentally with his surrounding players. Like if he knows somebody's cold, he tries to get them going. If he sees a hot hand, he'll make sure to feed it, which is just like a really great game management skill. Um, so seeing um, a concerted effort to get OG going is uh, really encouraging because they know how important he is in the future. Yeah, I think the best way to describe what makes the Raptors offense work all the time is Pascal Siakam creates the mismatch. Kyle Lowry recognizes the mismatch after exactly. it's created. Yeah. That's exactly how the Raptors, because Siakam is a walking mismatch. Anytime he dribbles or goes through a screen action, the yeah. defense goes through this. They jump through hoops. Somehow the ball goes out to Kyle Lowry and then it immediately goes to the advantage that the Raptors created because Kyle knows exactly what's going to happen. He recognizes, he's like, okay, that happened the way I thought it would. Guess who's getting the ball? Serge Ibaka on TJ McConnell. Let's go. Something like that. And that's, that's probably what makes the Raptors offense so potent, at least when it's doing very well in the half court. Of course, there's the Fred Van Vliet, I guess, uh, actions that, that work decently as well, but well, actually, before we get into the next quarter question, I know you fall into the same camp as me with this. Fred Van Vliet's finishing. What do we think about it? Is that something he can improve? Obviously, nobody's Kyle Lowry, but what do you think about Fred Van Vliet's finishing, how he can get it to a better spot? Um, I, I feel like it's possible. It will require crazy skill, but I think it's possible because even at age 30, like basically 34 for Kyle Lowry, um, he's starting to rely on physicality and um, just patience under the rim when trying to get his shot to go in. Um, I feel like before he would just have, he was sneaky athletic. He was really able to kind of just get some bounce in his shot just to rise up really high to make it so that laying it in is easier. But for Freddie, he doesn't seem to be able to kind of get the defender off of his back if he's going in transition um, and there, there aren't very many hesitation, like, or a sudden stop to get the guy off his back. So I, I feel like he can develop that, um, and eventually become a decent finisher, but it's definitely an absent part of his game that in between game in the mid range, which I feel like a short point guard like him should have down like a Kyle Lowry or, um, Chris Paul, um, and that finishing skill. So we already know what he can do on the perimeter. We already know that he's kind of introducing transition threes into his game and he's become so knocked down on the catch um but that's an absent part of his game but he's still young i i think he can figure it out yeah justin holiday when he brought the ball coming on the baseline from his right shoulder to his left shoulder and then back over for the layup do you remember that play yeah yeah i remember that one yeah yeah the last couple games he's been kind of of 
finding something, which is it, it requires a lot of kind of trickery, like a really deep bag around the basket that I've noticed. He's able to get a really cool spin on the ball that I don't even think Lowry has been able to do. Um, but I've noticed that kind of like a Kyrie type finishing. Yeah, Fred is definitely more pro-English than Lowry is. Lowry, sometimes it looks like he throws a knuckleball up at the rim, to be quite honest. But yeah. to, to yeah. swing us over to a guy who is fantastic at finishing, the next Twitter question from Love. At yeah, Happy it looks World very like, improvisational. Yeah, yeah, it totally is. Um, Love at Happy World 17. Are you guys worried about Siakam's recent regression? What exactly is his ceiling? And I'll, I'll, I'll take this one off the top, I guess, is that his regression is complacency to me and just being tired. Um, I don't want to be the hundredth person to harp on this, but Pascal Siakam, the amount of running he does defensively, the ground he covers is really unique in the NBA. Most NBA players, when they get to the level of stardom that Pascal Siakam is at, they prioritize offense and drop the defense. There was a sentiment that Siakam was having a down year defensively. I actually disagree with that. I think he's been better defensively this year. He's been immaculate on the back end. The amount of shots he contests, it's pretty crazy. And the complacency offensively is just his, I guess, tendency, his proclivity to turn to these little step-back jumpers or fadeaway jumpers when there's something more waiting for him. But I don't think that's regression because I think that's just him being complacent. And I don't expect those things to fail him in the playoffs. I think he'll be good going forward. But we'll talk about his ceiling in a bit. But Yasmin, what do you think? No, I agree with you there. Um, I, I really like how the Raptors use um, Pascal defensively. It's, it's different than how they would use OG. Um, I find that they use Pascal similar to how the uh, Bucks use um, Giannis, where he's allowed to roam. He's allowed to kind of just stick his limbs into passing lanes and to contest shots, to go to the rim when needed. Um, I think the kind of um, rhetoric around his defensive drop-off happened like kind of earlier in the season when um, he was getting beat off the dribble, um, blow-bys were happening. Um, but I think it's important to remember that he is a big man. He's, you know, we see Marcus All get blown by, but he's still our, uh, arguably our best defender, in my opinion, our best defender um, this season. Uh, but I'm not worried about Pascal's offensive drop off. I feel like he's going to have maybe two or three inefficient nights after kind of days and days going really efficient. Um, it's usually when he's settling for jump shots, like you said. Um, but his finishing has been great this season. Um, He's starting to read how opposing defenses are guarding him, and it's always a different look on a night-to-night basis. Sometimes we see him double-teamed. Sometimes we see him um, with single coverage. uh, And just seeing him spend usually the first quarter feeling out how his opponents are trying him and then adjusting accordingly, it's been really cool to see that journey for him um, at this stage You know, as the number one option this season. Yeah, and it's definitely a journey, and it hasn't been a linear number one option type thing because Kyle Lowry is still so prominent in the team. But the next part of the mm-hmm. question is, what exactly is his ceiling? And I'll throw that to you to try and, what is Siakam's ceiling? I think that's a tough question to answer. Yeah, it's tough because he's kind of um, turned what we know as a ceiling on its head. <laughs> like his entire story of development is at odds with what we understand to be a typical ceiling for a typical player. Um, But, you know, in my opinion, he has the potential to be um, a generational talent, really. Um, That's just based on his trajectory. That's what I think that his ceiling is. If he does not change and he's the Pascal that we know this season, that's also completely completely fine and I think still an overwhelming success. Um, But the reason why... um, I, I don't see him maybe being a top five player ever. I can see him becoming a staple, maybe top seven guy in a lot of people's lists. But um, with Pascal, the only issue really is that he doesn't have that um, kind of classical training from youth in basketball that a lot of players have where they start playing professionally really by age six um, in camps and um, for their school teams. So. That's the only um, 
thing that I think puts a ceiling on Pascal, his lack of uh, formative training. Yeah, it's also tough as far as being top seven. There's so many great players in the league right now. Exactly. That exactly. You can be an incredible player and just eke into the top ten. I mean, nobody thinks Paul George is bad, but he's maybe not even considered a top ten player right now. Guys who are in that top five, top seven have incredible accolades to their name. Exactly. They, yeah. Like what Damian Lillard has been able to achieve this year, James Harden, whether you like him or not, the sheer amount of points he can put on the board. Russell Westbrook, a guy who won an MVP, I guess, it is three years ago now, he is not even considered a top 10. Quite frankly, not even close. The The bevy of talent in the NBA is is Very so saturated. high. Yeah, it's yeah. so saturated. And especially towards that 1% of really great players, they just the talent level is is really insane. And so for Pascal, he definitely doesn't have to become a top seven guy, not with the team that's surrounding him. But exactly. I, that's not really necessary. Like um, he already he's already proven that he can be a number two guy on a championship caliber squad. Um, can he be the number one guy on a championship team? I don't know. But um, a lot of it is just how the team surrounding Pascal is built and I feel like he's always going to be put in a position to succeed yeah basically he he can get into the second tier there's the first yeah. tier of players that their presence on a team dictates championship aspirations I don't think he'll ever be at that level but mm -hmm. he can be in the next level of superstar and so if maybe that's a cut above a guy like Kyrie depending on how high Siakam gets and a cut below a guy like LeBron at his peak or KD, something like that. But and that's not, it, that's not too shabby. <laughs> no, it's, it's a great ceiling to have. And the next question we have is from Charlie Nichols at from the Raptors says, do you think this team can get it done in the playoffs as in an Eastern conference finals appearance? I know you pay a lot of attention to the 76ers in particular. I'm sure you know quite a bit about the Celtics. So I'll swing this to you to talk about it first. Um, I, yeah, I do follow the Sixers. I find their, um, the whole culture surrounding them really entertaining. <laughs> um, but yeah, for, um, the Raptors, I, I think that their emphasis on defense will always put them, um, will always give them a shot at anything that they do at any opponent that they face. Um, I do think that their ceiling is an Eastern Conference Finals appearance, especially if the standings work out correctly. Um, I think that their biggest competition in a playoff setting will be the 76ers um, just because of the sheer size of their team, especially the Sixers backcourt where their point guard is 6'10 and Josh Richardson is like 6'6. So um, it, the, the matchup, no matter how you cut it, is tough and it's tough for the Raptors six foot guards to get their shot off against a team like that. Um, but I think that the Raptors can absolutely manage that matchup. And Pascal has shown that even if he has a Ben Simmons guarding him, he can still find a way to uh, use his gravity to create looks for, the, for his teammates, which I think is like the next step of his development. Um, the Celtics are extremely talented, um, but the Raptors play them really, really well. Um, our our backcourt has always matched up really well against theirs. Um, Freddie is a great is the exact type of guard that you want to put on a guy like Kemba. Um, so that matchup would be really fun. That would be like my dream second round, a Raptor-Celtics matchup. Yeah, I think the I would give the Raptors a 70-30 in that, in that matchup. But the yeah. 30 is reserved for Jason Tatum becoming the best player in the series, which is very possible. He's, that is a chance. It's gotten yeah. to the point he's quite slept on in the league at this point now. Jason Tatum is very, very good at basketball, and he can he can get to a point where he's going to be an unconscionable player, like that Brandon Ingram step offensively while also being near an all-NBA defense level defensively. Mm -hmm. That would be a really cool matchup. But he's very uh, reminiscent of like a Paul George. Like his defense taking the leap it did this season puts him into it like a kind of another echelon of player. Yeah, and he's he's very like we watched Karis LeVert last night play against the Raptors, and mm -hmm. you watch how creative Karis LeVert is around the rim, how slithery he is on the finish. Jason Tatum has that as well, 
when he's going downhill, he can be really creative if his jump shot is going. The amount of length he has, his his ability to get a shot up is... Yeah, he's just a very dangerous player. If he ascends to being the best player in that series, that's where it could get a little bit, I guess, uh, tricky for the Raptors. But the 76ers, I chose them to win the championship this year at the start of the season. I revere Joel Embiid's size and his ability to affect the game. And mm-hmm. that's it was that prediction was made on the back of Joel Embiid, not and Ben Simmons being a like a top five defender when he wants to be. He's incredible. Last year he was fantastic on Kawhi, even though Kawhi obviously played fantastic. But the 76ers would be really difficult for the Raptors too. They provide a very interesting yeah, it's matchup. Important, it's important to look at the um, the matchup on a personnel basis when looking at the cluster of teams because, you know, I the like records are not too telling advanced stats. They can they tell you how this team matches up with a, maybe 29 other teams in the NBA, but if you want to look at how it matches up with your team in particular, you got to look at the personnel and I just I think the Raptors can handle a, a Miami Heat series. Because I feel like they're well equipped to do so, um, matchup-wise, um, the way they can dissect zones and stuff. I just think it'll be a favorable matchup for the Raptors. But in terms of a, a series that will be competitive, but that I'm you know waiting to see, it's the Celtics and Sixers that present the main competition um, in getting to the Eastern Conference Finals. And the Bucks are kind of just another uh, hurdle. Yeah, and the the Heat, I'm not worried about at all. The Pacers, I would be worried about if Victor Oladipo gets back to that borderline top 12 level player that he was at his highest height. But mm-hmm. outside of that, I'm not really I'm not really too worried about that. But I guess somebody has decided to start hammering something in my little <laughs> my little house here in Mexico, I guess. <laughs> we have we have one more question we'll get into. And then I guess I have a game at two o'clock. All right. So I have a game in 40 minutes that I guess I have to run to as well. Um, But (laughs) the last question from Nick Spicer says, who is in the bio market? Do we even need anyone? Will we ever lose again? And I'll swing that over to you. Um, Do the Raptors even have a roster spot available? That's the thing. I don't think they don't. And I don't know if they're willing to cut a person for a buyout market person. Um, because yeah. I, I feel like they're kind of just they have already options on their bench. Organizational competence from the top down is what makes the Raptors less exciting in the buyout market. And yeah. it's what makes and organizational incompetence is what makes the Lakers exciting in the buyout market. Because the Lakers, who is their eleventh man? I don't know. It, I mean, I should know, but the Raptors, you, I know who guys are, 1 through 15, not just because I write about them, but because there's a story of them having a big game at different points in the year. Exactly, so, yeah. The Raptors, I, I don't think they'll be big-time players in the bio market. Yeah, me neither. But I, I'm going to get out of here, I guess, seeing as somebody's decided to, to break down my building. <laughs> And I have a basketball game to get to. Before we get out of here, I want to thank you so much for coming on, Yasmin. But the floor is yours. Feel free to plug whatever you like, whatever you've been up to, and whatever people should be paying attention to. All right. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, so I suggest everyone check out the Dishes and Dimes podcast. Um, We release an episode Sunday night every week. Sometimes there's a midweek episode if something interesting happens. I'm sure we'll have a couple midweek episodes during the All-Star break. Um, A lot of Raptors things will be going on during that time with Nick Nurse coaching the Eastern team and with with Kyle Lowry and um, Pascal being on Giannis' team. I'm sure there's going to be plenty um, to talk about during that time. So, yes, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been it's been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Listener, thank you so much for listening, whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night. Have a blessed day and goodbye. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. 
Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply.